Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Does the name N.T. Wright mean anything to you? Nicholas Thomas Wright often known just as Tom, is one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world today. And early in the history of Beeson Divinity School, it was 1991, he visited us and presented a series of lectures. We're going to listen to one of those today. I have here with me in the studio my uh, dear friend and colleague, Dr. Frank Thielman, who at one time in his life was a student of Tom Wright back at Cambridge University and has had more recent uh, experience of talking, discussing issues, ideas with Tom at the Evangelical Theological Society a couple of years ago. So uh, Tom Wright has been a friend of, of Frank and of our school for a long time. We admire him in many ways. He's a controversial figure, it has to be said. And some of his ideas have been challenged. I myself have written an article uh, in which uh, I take issue with him on some of his ideas. But the lecture we're going to hear today was given early in 1991, and it really talks about New Testament methodology more than anything else, how you study the Bible in the modern world. So, Frank, tell us a little bit about your relationship to Tom and what we're going to hear in this lecture. Well, thank you, Timothy. I had a, a student-teacher relationship with Dr. Wright years ago when I was an undergraduate student in theology and religious studies at Cambridge University. I was at Selwyn College, and Dr. Wright was at Downing College. He was the dean of chapel there. But in the Cambridge system, you could be supervised by anyone in any of the colleges. And I particularly asked to be supervised by Dr. Wright because I knew he was an evangelical and we would be on the same page, basically, theologically. And I certainly found that to be true back in the early 1980s. He was a very good supervisor, very creative thinker, very engaging communicator, and a skillful uh, teacher. So I, I've benefited greatly from his teaching. Now, one of the things that I, I think um, Tom Wright has done in his work is to really try to help us think about what it means to say that Christianity is a historical religion. And in this particular lecture, he's going to be, uh, in a way, positioning a sort of pietistic or fundamentalist, uh, naive kind of reading of the Bible that ignores the rigors of criticism over against an enlightenment reading of scripture that is very critical and uh, somewhere I think there's a dialectic going on there. What would you think about that? I think that's right. I think Dr. Wright is really at his best as an apologist and uh, that's a lot of what he's doing in this lecture. He is a learned historian and was really trained in ancient history in his own undergraduate work at Oxford And so he understands the way a historian should approach the New Testament. He, as a Christian, he knows that um, Christians make historical claims and our faith is anchored in history. And so a lot of what he's doing in his work is trying to show that our faith is historically credible by using the tools that any historian might use. And I think you can see that in this lecture. He is uh, laying out the method, really, for uh, a multi-volume work that uh, will eventually bear the title, The um, New Testament and the Question of God. It's not really a New Testament theology because it's too historically engaged, really, to carry the title of a New Testament theology. But he gave this lecture in 1991, and the first volume of that multi-volume work, which is not yet completed, was about to come out in 1992, and that work is called The New Testament and the People of God. And you're speaking about his writings. Of course, we could go on for a whole podcast and just list his writings. He's very prolific. I think one of his very best books is The Resurrection of the Son of God. And it's a wonderful study of the resurrection in light of all the questions that have been raised in recent uh, centuries and presenting uh, what is really the nub of the Christian faith, uh, the resurrection of Christ. I would recommend that book 
uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, Tom Wright, when he came to Beeson, was at Oxford University, a chaplain in one of the colleges there. He's gone on to do a number of other things in the life of the academy and the life of the church. He's been the Bishop of Durham. He's been the canon theologian of Westminster uh, Cathedral in London. And currently he is serving as the professor of New Testament at St. Andrew's University in Scotland. So join us now as we listen to Dr. Tom Wright from 1991 speaking on how to study the Bible in the modern world. We're very pleased to have with us this morning the Reverend Dr. N. Thomas Wright, university lecturer at Oxford University, speaking to us on the topic, the study of the Bible in the modern world. Dr. Wright, welcome to Birmingham and to the Beeson Divinity School. Thank you, Dr. Thielman, for your welcome, and thank you, all of you. I have been made to feel extremely welcome since I came here a couple of days ago. I still have a little difficulty working out which day of the week it is because of the hours spent traveling and the hours of time difference between Oxford and here, and also because of the the difference in climate between Oxford and here. You already have right outside here the kind of temperature that we would expect on a, a warm July afternoon in Oxford, and it's a real treat for me to come and get a little foretaste of summer uh, among you at this time. And uh, I'm particularly excited to be speaking on this title, Studying the Bible in the Modern World, because a great deal of what I do professionally has to do with exactly this topic, and it gives me a chance to reflect on uh, the sort of thing that I do anyway and on what it actually means. It's no bad thing to stand back from the routine of one's everyday employment and say, what exactly is it that I'm up to? And does it make sense? And why am I doing it? And stuff like that. And it's just about the beginning of the university term in Oxford, and I'm about to plunge back into it once again. And so these reflections come in the last days before I'm starting actually to do it once more with my students. And I think this phrase, studying the Bible in the modern world, speaks to us both of a problem and an opportunity. And it's about the problem and the opportunity that I want to speak this morning. And then on Thursday morning, in two days' time, I want to home in on some more specific issues within the task of studying the Bible. I should say, again, by way of preliminary, that I am basically a New Testament specialist. I love the Old Testament. I read it regularly. I preach on it often. But I'm not a professional student or teacher of Old Testament. And so quite a bit of what I have to say is more specifically related to the New Testament, but I shall particularly on Thursday offer some reflections from my own perspective on the whole task of integrating New and Old Testaments within that overall study of the Bible in the modern world. I said that uh, this phrase, studying the Bible in the modern world, sets before us a problem and an opportunity. And uh, my head was filled a couple of days ago with the problem and opportunity that faces couples in marriage. I was taking the, the wedding of one of my students on Saturday in Oxford, and I had to preach to that couple and their families, some of whom were Christians and many of whom were not. And I find that whenever I approach the task of addressing people getting married, uh, that there are two quite different things going on. From the one point of view, certainly in our society in Britain today, marriage is at a discount. People are saying it's meaningless or irrelevant, and uh, lots of people are finding that despite their best intentions, things fall apart, because it really seems that to put together this man and this woman in holy matrimony is actually an impossible task. They're so different, and their personalities and backgrounds uh, present so many problems in terms of their getting together, and we see so many who try and who fail. But equally, one has to say that uh, the more one knows students, the more one finds again and again they will do this thing of falling in love and wanting to get married, and one wants to encourage them because it is, of course, God's good gift to his creation. And so one is faced with the problem of uh, feeling that it is vital and important that these people should come together, but of being aware of the great difficulties that are involved in making and sustaining a marriage, especially a Christian marriage, within the modern world. And something of the same sort of thing is going on when we're studying the Bible in the modern world. As Christians, the Bible is uh, part of who we are. We can't throw it away. We are compelled to read it, and 
as we do so, we are compelled to read it with our minds awake and alert. But there are enormous problems, and the modern world has thrown up a lot of problems about the study of the Bible. And so we are both compelled to this task, to study the Bible in the modern world, and we find that in doing so, there are lots of difficulties. But at the same time, we find today that there are many opportunities for studying the Bible in a way that there weren't maybe a hundred years or so ago. Today, there, are, uh, an, there is an enormous range of tools of study. There are new texts available. There are bits of uh, major scholarly work on the background literature. There are huge new dictionaries and new concordances and major new series of commentaries and so on. So that anyone who wants to study the Bible today actually has so much material available that wasn't available before that it's almost bewildering. But we need to go beyond the superficial. We need to go beyond the quick dash to a commentary or the quick grabbing of a word out of a dictionary or a lexicon. And we need to ask, what are we actually doing with all of this? Where is it going? What are we aiming at? As has been well said, he who aims at nothing will probably hit it. And so I don't want so much to talk about the story of what has been done in New Testament studies as the task of what should be done in New Testament and biblical studies as a whole. Uh, because it seems to me quite clear that New Testament studies and biblical studies have taken place within large overviews of what the task is. When I was first doing research in biblical studies, I used to go to the library and read an article which seemed from its title as though it was relevant to what I was trying to do, but I would be puzzled as to what on earth this author was actually driving at. I would understand the words, I would understand the sentences, but I wouldn't see why anyone would take the trouble to go to all that detail to reach this conclusion. Because to begin with, I just didn't understand the larger issues, the major paradigms the, the, the hidden agendas which are there within all biblical criticism. When I use that phrase, hidden agendas, I don't mean it in a derogatory sense. We all have agendas. We all have questions. It's right we should come with them. But it's part of my concern today and in my work back in Oxford as well that we should actually articulate what those agendas are so that we can look at them and see why we then engage in this detailed study. And I want to begin these reflections after these introductory words with uh, some thoughts on the present situation and how we've got here. This briefly by way of introduction before going into uh, a forward look. The present situation as I see it is the product of two things in particular. On the one hand, there is the insistence in the uh, enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries that all dogma, all Christian dogma, should be tested at the bar of history. The people who one associates with the Enlightenment, the uh, continental philosophers of the 17th and 18th century in particular, were fed up with dogmatic Christian teaching, with the idea that the clergy, whether Catholic or Protestant, could just say, thus it is written, this is the way it is, and you had just better sit there and take it. And they said, actually, if we go back and look at the real history and look at what happened, we'll discover it wasn't quite like that. One of the people who I have to study in the course of my work, uh, Rymarus, who is famous for having begun the so-called quest for the historical Jesus, was completely convinced that if we went back and looked at the history of the first century, we would discover that Jesus wasn't, in fact, the Son of God striding through the earth, doing miracles, going to the cross to die for the sins of the world, rising again gloriously three days later. He was just a Jewish revolutionary, and a failed Jewish revolutionary at that. And Rymarus grasped the point that if history could really demonstrate that Jesus was simply a first-century Jewish revolutionary who made a mess of things and whose disciples then falsified the record afterwards, then all the dogmas of Christianity would be undermined. And though it might take a little while, gradually the edifice would come crumbling down. And so the Enlightenment uh, insisted that dogma should be tested at the bar of history. And the Christian reaction to that has been very interesting. Because from my point of view, and I hope from your point of view, it matters that Christianity is earthed in history. Christianity cannot escape to a private sphere 
When we say the creed, as in my church, we say either the Apostles or the Nicene Creed uh, day after day and week after week in the liturgy, one of the most striking moments in the creed is when that poor benighted Roman Pontius Pilate gets a mention, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It matters that it happened in the first century and that it actually took place within the sphere of publicly observable history. We know about Pilate from inscriptions, from secular records. It matters that this wasn't just an idea that some people had in private, but that it took place in public history. The events of Jesus Christ are to be seen within that domain, and what's more, it matters to Christians that they happened not just at an isolated moment in time, but at a moment which was the climax hence the title of my new book, The Climax of the Covenant, the climax of all that God had been doing in the past, particularly in relation to his people Israel. And what's more, it matters to Christians, and always has mattered to Christians, that the events concerning Jesus should be seen through the lenses of the New Testament, and not through the lenses of, shall we say, Pontius Pilate's court records. We don't actually possess them. It'd be nice if we did, but we don't. But even if we did, Christians would insist that the right grid for interpreting these events comes in these documents, the New Testament. And so the problem is how to put together the challenge of the Enlightenment, will your dogma really stand up at the bar of history, with the Christian commitment to saying this Jesus really is who we have always said he was, more or less. And the trouble is, of course, that the Enlightenment was too shrill in its denunciation of dogma, and the Church, for quite a while anyway, was, and in some ways, alas, still is, too unshakably solid and, and unmovably rigid in resisting new ideas in its determination to defend, well, what was it defending? What was it really defending? Was it New Testament Christianity? that the church tried to defend when it rejected the Enlightenment ideas out of court? Let me give you an illustration to show you the way, in, well, one way anyway, in which one can conceive the battle between the forces of the Enlightenment and the scholarship that it has engendered on the one hand and the forces of Christianity and particularly of uh, a pietist and sometimes a defensively pietist Christianity on the other. The illustration begins with some geography. The land of Israel is a small country. You can walk its length from north to south in a matter of days. And if you stand on the mountains in the middle, you can see both the river to the uh, east and the sea to the west. But it's had an enormous Im uh, importance out of proportion to its size. Empires have fought over it. And once every 44 years, on average, out of the last 4,000, an army has marched through it whether to attack it or to defend it or to fight somebody else there or whatever. I owe that statistic to a friend in Jerusalem. And there are many places in the land of Israel which, though once beautiful, are now battered and mangled with the legacies of war. And yet it's remained a beautiful land, full of grapes and figs and milk and honey. Now, take that as an illustration of the New Testament. The New Testament is a small book. It's smaller than anyone else's holy book. Uh, and it's small enough just to be read through in a day or two, but it's had an importance out of all proportion to its slim appearance. It has again and again been a battleground for warring armies. Sometimes the armies have come to plunder its treasure for their own use or to annex bits of its territory as part of a larger empire that needed a few extra mountains, perhaps particularly some holy ones. Sometimes people have come to fight their battles on the New Testament territory, even though uh, their battles weren't really about the New Testament. So they have argued about Matthew or Paul or even about Jesus, not for, for their own sake, but in order to wage a war between two worldviews or philosophies, which don't really have a lot to do with the New Testament. And so, as we now look at the literature of the last two centuries, there are many places whose fragile beauty has been trampled by heavy-footed exegetes in search of a Greek root or a quick sermon or a political slogan. And yet the New Testament has remained a powerful and evocative book, full of delicacy and majesty and tears and laughter. 
What ought we then to do with it? Well, there are no available border fences to keep out the philosophers and the philologists and the politicians and the casual tourists, and nor ought we to erect them if there were. There are many people who have come to pilfer and have stayed to be pilgrims. And attempts have been made to keep this book as the prerogative of one or other concern. There have been takeover bids by scholars on the one side and by pietists on the other, and by fundamentalists here and armchair social workers there. But these have simply ended with the equivalent in New Testament studies of the unseemly battles that still take place, alas, not only outside Christian circles, but within, within the land of Israel. And there have been two groups broadly that I've already mentioned, the Enlightenment Scholarship Group and the, the Defensive Christian Group, that have tried to make this book their own preserve. And like the two major claimants to the land of Israel in our own day, each contains some who are committed to the entire removal of the others from the land, though each also contains many who persist in searching for compromise solutions. And we've got to understand both of the positions. The scholars seem to have seized power a century or more ago, and they occupy many major posts and fortresses, eminent chairs and well-known publishing houses and so on. And they insist, or have insisted, that the New Testament be read in a thoroughgoing historical way, without inflicting on it the burden of being theologically normative. We've got to find out the original meaning of the texts, We've got to set them out as carefully as we can, and we've got to ignore the feelings of those who thought that this book actually said something different and supported their kind of spirituality or lifestyle. And there is sometimes an arrogance about this claim to power. It builds on the apparent strength of history. It is able to demonstrate the inadequacies of the simplistic ways of life which preceded it. And sometimes such scholars have set up, so to speak, concrete gun stations where before there were vineyards, and they have patrolled the streets of New Testament readers to harass those who insist on the old simplistic ways. On the other side, there have been those who have been very determined to resist the new regime. Some people still regard the New Testament as a kind of magic book whose meaning has precious little to do with what it actually meant when somebody sat down and wrote it with what the first century authors intended. And it has a great deal to do in many people's eyes with how a particular group today has been accustomed to hear in it a call to a certain kind of spirituality or lifestyle. Now you can see that phenomenon very often within many different fundamentalist groups, but also within many different groups in other parts of the church within, for instance, my own church, Anglicanism, or within Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, where, if you're not careful, the Bible just becomes something that you meet in little snippets in the lectionary. And all that it does is simply reinforce something that is going on within a liturgical worldview without any chance of actually saying something new and without any chance of that something new having any relation to what the New Testament meant within its historical context. And the New Testament, from that point of view, seems to be there to sustain the soul rather than to stretch the mind. And such attitudes have often responded to arrogance with arrogance. They have tried to set up no-go areas where the scholarly occupying forces cannot penetrate, and so on. Now, so much for the illustration. I hope it's, it's made its point and you see where I'm going. But here is the paradox that the Enlightenment began as a critique of Christianity, but I believe that the Enlightenment project of getting at the history behind the biblical text can actually be used as a means of recalling Christianity to its genuine roots, to its genuine historical beginnings. And to the fears that have been addressed to this, I have certain answers. Much Christianity is afraid of history. It's afraid that if we really found out what happened in the first century, we would discover that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But we, we are committed to history. It is unavoidable. Without history, we are always in danger of making Jesus or of making the whole biblical story in our own image and imagining a Jesus who simply corresponds to what we are or what we would like to be instead of meeting the real Jesus. Equally, much Christianity is afraid of learning. In my country, there is at the moment a great anti-intellectual move within all sorts of branches of Christianity. 
but it seems to me quite clear that Christianity must be able to be sustained within the world of hard and careful thought. That's not to say it must submit to intellectual fashions, but it must be able to have the rigor, to, the intellectual rigor, to take on the charges which are put against it. And if one believes in truth, then as a Christian, one ought to have nothing to be afraid of. It's interesting that before Jesus was found in the Gospels to be engaging in his ministry with the common people, and before he was dying alongside the outcasts, he was found in the temple debating with the learned. It seems to me that that is one valid part of the totality of Christianity. Equally, much Christianity is afraid of uh, reducing its supernatural faith to rationalist categories. But the sharp distinction between rationalist on the one hand and supernaturalist on the other is itself a product of the Enlightenment. And if we insist on it, then we are actually capitulating to the Enlightenment rather than resisting it. So far, there is a problem. But at the same time, I believe there is an opportunity. Because if the Bible is anything like, anything like what Christians have claimed it to be, it is designed to be not simply a defensive mechanism into which Christians can retreat to protect themselves from the world. It is designed to be part of the Creator's means of addressing his world. So that the study of the Bible, the careful and prayerful and thorough reading of it, is designed not simply to bolster a Christian worldview as an escape from the world, but is designed to enable the church to address the world and to challenge the world in the name of its creator. In fact, of course, the modern world, in inverted commas, is perhaps a misnomer. We find today that there are vast swings of mood within modernism. The word modernism is now very passé. We have got used to thinking now in terms of postmodernism. And people on the leading edge of our Western culture are talking now about what do we do after postmodernism? How many more posts are we going to have? And we find that in the intellectual sphere, we have moved then from modernism to postmodernism and maybe beyond. In the more broad cultural sphere, in uh, America, I take it, and certainly in Europe at the moment, we have swung and are swinging from the kind of dualism that characterized the Enlightenment, which regarded the created order simply as either a gold mine or an ashtray, to a kind of pantheism which is involved with the New Age movements, or to the kind of paganism which is, uh, again, uh, regarding the world as a place for material exploitation. There are all kinds of new philosophical, ideological, cultural moves on the way at the moment. And the proper use of the Bible must not simply be, therefore, to retreat, to retreat into the privacy of a safe Christian haven, but rather to, to be used as part of the church's task of creating new ways of thinking and being in the postmodern or post-postmodern world. There are tasks which uh, the church needs to address today, and it needs the Bible at its elbow as it does so. And it needs to address those tasks in new ways, and therefore, I believe, needs to reflect in new ways on the Bible. This leads me then to the second half of what I want to say this morning, which is uh, to expound to you briefly the two classic models of what to do with the New Testament, which have dominated much study in the present century, and to show that they are both, I think, inadequate as they stand, and to suggest ways towards doing things a little differently. Much of the debate about what to do with the New Testament this century has swung between the two possible poles. On the one hand, a simple, apparently simple, historical task. On the other hand, uh, uh, an apparently normative theological task. We have had people who have said the only thing we can do with the Bible is talk about what happened in history in the first century, why people wrote that stuff then. We can't presume that it's normative. And we've had other people who have said from within the Christian tradition and on its borders, well, actually, this book addresses people in new ways today. How have those tasks uh, been gone about? 
Well, the history of early Christianity has been and has continued to be a major preoccupation. There's been a great deal of energy expended on it in the last hundred years. People have studied the Judaism of the first century in great detail, far more in this century than I think at any other time. People have attempted to place John the Baptist and particularly Jesus within that context. There's been a flood of books and they keep on coming, trying out the historical task of putting Jesus within his first century context. Then people have looked particularly in a lot of detail at the early church. What did the early Christians actually believe? What did their life together look like? People have studied Paul in his historical context. What was he saying to the people of his day? And they have tried to strip off the layers of interpretation as Augustine or Luther or other people more close to our own time have grasped Paul and made him their own. And people have said, well, steady on. Paul may not have been saying what Augustine or Luther or anybody else said he was saying. Maybe he was saying something different. We've got to put him in his first century context. And they have looked at the post-Pauline or anti-Pauline movements in the early church and on into the second and third generations of early Christianity. And in principle, of course, one of the great strengths of this is that such a task can be engaged in by any historian from any background without any prior commitment necessarily to Christianity. Also, it usually seems, and I think a good case can be made out for that, that, for instance, my colleague in Oxford, Dr. Geza Vermesh, is uh, a liberal Jew, and he would not claim to come with any Christian presuppositions, but his contribution is important. He knows the Jewish sources far better than I do, and I need to listen to him in articulating what's going on in the first century. I also need to disagree with him at several points, but that's another matter. The tasks, therefore, are to plot what people actually thought and believed and hoped for and did, how they were motivated within the first century. And it's interesting to note that this task actually goes far beyond the study of the New Testament itself. It goes out into the study of the Jewish literature, the study of early Christian literature that didn't make it into the New Testament, and so on and so forth. And it also insists on reading between the lines of the New Testament to find out uh, what other people were doing and saying whose works are not recorded in the New Testament. For instance, people have read between the lines of Paul, uh, of the letters, to discover what Paul's opponents were saying. And people have written books about Paul's opponents, and then they have said, we need to take those people every bit as seriously as we take Paul. After all, there were they in the first century trying to live as Christians. They were puzzled about Paul. We're often puzzled about Paul. Maybe we need to think about them just as much as we think about Paul, and so on. So this project of writing the history of early Christianity has the great advantage that it happens in the public domain, the great opportunity at the moment because of the explosion of knowledge about first century Judaism and so on, but it also has great problems at the level of the task itself. As one tends to find always with ancient history, there's never quite enough information uh, for what we want to do. I studied ancient history as part of my first degree, and constantly, just when you thought you were on the verge of understanding some Roman emperor or some uh, Greek politician, the sources ran out. There was a missing bit, or there just weren't any inscriptions from that period, and one can't fill in all the gaps. Now, of course, that hasn't stopped scholars from trying to fill in the gaps. And Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars have had great fun filling in gaps where there is actually no information with hypotheses piled upon hypotheses. And quite often that stuff has just got so complex and so out of touch with texts that it needs to be recalled to basics. I often think that one project which needs to be done in my own field today is something like what Albert Schweitzer did around the turn of the century. Schweitzer, you may recall, wrote a very famous and groundbreaking book which in English was called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And what he did was he lined up what everyone had done in the 19th century about Jesus. And he basically said, it's all, a, it's all a pile of rubbish. It's all just a matter of, of people projecting their own ideas back onto Jesus. Didn't stop Schweitzer himself from having his own go at reconstructing it. But somebody today needs to write the history of, of 20th century New Testament scholarship in terms of the quest for the charismatic church. 
Scholars have written uh, reams and reams about what the early church was like by reading between the lines of the Gospels, reading between the lines of Paul, and constructing fantastic hypotheses. hypotheses. And somebody needs to do a Schweitzer-like demolition job on all of that stuff and set it perhaps on firmer foundations. We have seen in the last 10 years or so, not least on the west coast of the United States, hypotheses which have implied that early Christianity and indeed Jesus himself were not like the Gospels have normally uh, portrayed him, but that Jesus was in fact uh, a cynic with a capital C or possibly some kind of an early Gnostic and that it was Matthew and Mark and Luke and John who put him into a Jewish framework which originally he didn't really belong in. And so there's been plenty of opportunity for that kind of thing, which has bedeviled this project of the history of early Christianity. And there have been great problems within this project at the level of the use of this task. Because in fact, however much the scholars tend to say, all we are doing is describing the way it was in the beginning, and we're not proposing to evaluate or to move from that into a normative program, they haven't been able to resist the temptation to move to normativity. But it's very difficult to see how, with that project of simple historical description, you can get a proper normative program for what the church or indeed anybody else ought to be thinking, believing, or doing in the 20th century. The way we've normally done it, and a lot of Christians have thought like this without realizing that that's what they were thinking, is to highlight the earliest bits of Christianity and to say that if only we could get back and discover what it was like to be a Christian on the day of Pentecost, then we would know what real Christianity was like, and then we'd be able to try and implement that in the church and world of the late 20th century. But that is fraught with difficulties. The New Testament, most of it, was not written in order to give us a picture of what uh, the very early Christianity was like. And indeed, when we try and get such a picture, it seems to have been a very muddled period. The early disciples are very puzzled. They made mistakes. They had to backtrack. They had debates and arguments and splits and all sorts of things. Do we really want to go back to that and say we have to reproduce that? That, I think, uh, depends on what is essentially a false view of Christian origins. But what's the alternative? That we highlight one part or another part of early Christianity? Scholars this century have swung this way and that. Some have said that the main thing about Christianity is that it broke free from the shackles of Judaism. So what we must do in reading the New Testament in this historical task is to find the places, for instance, Paul, where the church broke free from Judaism, and to make Paul the center, and to say that anything in the New Testament which still looks as though it's got some of that Jewish stuff clinging to it has to be relativized. And then there was the great swing, uh, uh, very interestingly and not surprisingly, just after the Second World War with the realization of what that incipient anti-Semitism had done culturally in our century. And now in the last 30 or 40 years, people have said actually the most important thing about the New Testament is its Jewishness. And that what we have to do is to highlight the Jewish message of early Christianity and to resist the pagan encroachments which came in. But where do those presuppositions come from? The presupposition that Judaism or Hellenism is either a good thing or a bad thing. Do they come from the New Testament or do they come from cultural assumptions within our own generations which have often been unexamined? So the result has often been, I'm cutting a few corners here, as indeed I shall be doing for the rest of this morning and on Thursday, the result has been that an apparently clear aim, simply to describe what was going on in the first century, has been purchased at the cost of the possibility of a serious normative reading, which has resulted in endless wrangles, which I think couldn't get anywhere because of problems at the level of method. So the second model has been uh, perpetrated by the people who've looked at that historical task and have said, that's not enough. What we must do is New Testament theology. And this phrase, New Testament theology, in inverted commas, as it were, has been much brandished about in the 20th century. I have here a very recent book by the Finnish scholar Heike Reisinen called Beyond New Testament Theology. He examines all that's been done this century under that title and at the end concludes that what we have to do is to go back to that program of sim simple historical description. 
And I want to talk very briefly now about what's happened with this New Testament theology. It grow, this project grows out of the ineradicable Christian belief from the very earliest times that being a Christian means living and believing and behaving in some sort of continuity with the New Testament and indeed with the Old Testament, though that has raised other questions and difficulties. I'll get to that, I hope, on Thursday. It's also this New Testament pro theology project has grown out of the Protestant insistence on sola scriptura, on scripture alone as the final authority. So that Christians have said we must look at the New Testament first and foremost and centrally. That's where we get our marching orders. That's where we start. That's where we are equipped and challenged and reinforced and given a basis for belief and life. Now that's fine as far as it goes. I stand in that Reformation tradition myself. But the problem comes when we say, how can the Bible as a whole and the New Testament in particular actually function like that? The, ref the reformers explicitly foreswore the possibility of going the medieval route of having various different senses of scripture so that you could allegorize in this way or that and get an authoritative meaning out of a text that at first seemed rather difficult. And, and so the reformers insisted instead on the literal sense of scripture, that we have to read the New Testament and discover its literal, not its allegorical sense. Now, that was, in a sense, all right in the pre-critical times when people simply read the New Testament in the flat and said, well, if it says here that such and such happened, then I guess it happened and that's the end of the matter. But that pre-critical way has then been ruled out by the Enlightenment's insistence on serious history. So this project of New Testament theology has fallen heir to a very complex sequence of motivations and presuppositions the desire to make the New Testament central, the desire to make the New Testament and the Bible the, the supreme authority, the desire to read it literally, and the desire to read it historically, but also the desire to make it, at the end of all of that, somehow normative for Christian faith and life and theological understanding. And not surprisingly, that has proved a very tall order. And what has been done under that heading this century has very often been that people have studied the history in order then to strip away the history and to leave the timeless truth, the, the ahistorical theology, standing out proud, standing out clear, so that apparently once you've done the history, you say, well, that bit was merely culturally conditioned, but this bit is timelessly true, and then we can carry it off in triumph and enshrine it within some other culture or whatever. What are we to say about a task like this? Well, its great strength is that it takes seriously the Christian belief in the normativity of Scripture, that Scripture is not simply a book to be studied in order to discover what some people thought and did then. It is a book to be studied in order to find who we are and what we're about now. It takes that seriously. But has it really taken history itself as seriously as it should, if, as in the work of Rudolf Bultzmann, for instance, it seems to be saying that we study history in order then to leave history behind. I think it hasn't, and it's always in danger, as with uh, Bultzmann's method in, in, in particular, of lapsing into some sort of gnosticism, some sort of escape from history, which uh, simply does the historical task as a way of saying, then let's get that stuff out of the way. And, of course, the problem with that is that the timeless truth won't come away clean from the historical material. You can't simply peel them off like peeling the skin off a banana. Paul's theology of justification by faith is not timelessly true in that sense. It's not non-culturally conditioned. It belongs within the debates and language and arguments of the first century. And if we pretend that it can simply be lifted up and carried around and plonked down in the 4th or the 15th or the 16th or the 20th century, we do Paul and ourselves no service. No, life is actually harder than that.
And in particular, this New Testament theology project has constantly failed to take the whole New Testament seriously. It has constantly broken down into a canon within the canon, making either Paul or Mark or some other part the norm and uh, grouping everything else and often relativizing everything else around it. Or if it hasn't done that, it's often managed not to do that only by flattening everything out into a very vague and generalized statement of this supposedly normative truth. And in particular... This project of New Testament theology has always had difficulty about the place of Jesus. This is classically true in Bultmann's work, where the very first sentence of Bultmann's New Testament theology reminds us that Jesus himself is not part of, quote, New Testament theology. Jesus didn't write any of the books in the New Testament. If we're studying the New Testament themselves, itself, we're studying Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the rest, who write about Jesus, but the message of Jesus is not part of the New Testament theology, it is the presupposition for it. And that, I suggest, comes because of the particular form of the Protestant ancestry of this task. If you've studied church history, you may know enough about uh, Luther and Melanchthon and some of the others to know that they insisted that what matters is not simply that Jesus said or did something in the past, but that what Jesus did, he did for me. Now, what's happened in the 20th century is that the for me bit has been so elevated by some within that Protestant tradition, like Rudolf Bultmann, for instance, that they have said we must not concentrate on what Jesus did at all because that will detract from the for me, the pro-me of the gospel. And so Bultmann says we must leave behind the Jesus of history in order to embrace the Christ of faith. And it seems to me that actually that project has run into the sand, and it was always bound to. Because the critique of Reimarus in the 18th century or of Vermesh and Sanders in the 20th century simply won't go away. And I think it's false to the New Testament as well. Because for the evangelists, the place where God had acted decisively for the salvation of the world was not in their taking pen and ink to write a gospel, but in God's own taking of flesh and blood to die on a cross. And one might say, so much then the worse for, quote, New Testament theology, unquote. Is there a larger project? Is there another way of conceiving the task which won't lose the centrality of the Bible of the New Testament, but which will actually include within it and at a central point the fact of Jesus and of all that he stood for? And with Jesus, the whole of that Old Testament history, which he claimed to be drawing towards its climax. Well, after those two classic models and their problem, it seems to me that we are therefore looking for a way, a way forward, which won't abandon the Enlightenment's proper insistence on history, on doing this work in the public domain and not merely as a private game, but which won't abandon either the church's proper concern for the authority of Scripture. In other words, we are looking for a task which integrates the scholarly task and the Christian vocation without compromising either. So in the concluding moments of this lecture, I want to look towards a possible new paradigm. I think the problems with those two paradigms have been caused by a failure within the Enlightenment worldview, within modernism as normally conceived, to see clearly enough what precisely history is, what precisely theology is, particularly Christian theology, and what precisely literature is. And we're dealing with literature when we're looking at the Bible. Now, obviously, I can't in five minutes tell you what history, theology, and literature are, and I'd be foolish to try. But I just have some remarks to sketch some things out, and which will then set up a context so that next time I'll be able to go into much more specific detail. I'm sorry that this first lecture has been very generalized, but uh, I assure you that I will get to a lot more detail next time. First, some remarks about history. History does not consist of bare facts. This is simply a positivist's dream, the idea that we look back at events in the past and we simply talk about events neutrally without evaluating or selecting. I sometimes say to my student, let's take an example of something that looks like a bare fact in history. 
and we take a statement from the New Testament, Christ died for our sins, well, we can say, we can see that this phrase, for our sins, that is clearly an evaluation. That's a theological evaluation. So we take that away. All right, this statement, Christ died. Well, a Jew would say, I don't think that the Jesus who died on the cross was the Messiah. And you as a Christian, by saying Christ died, have imposed an evaluation. All right, let's say Jesus died. Well, why are we saying Jesus died? Two other people died on crosses that afternoon. Why are we choosing to talk about this one? And in fact, thousands of young Jews were crucified by the Romans outside the walls of Jerusalem between B.C. 63 and A.D. 70, why are we choosing to talk about this one? We have selected. All history involves selection and arrangement. It must do, otherwise we could never say anything. We'd have to talk about everything all at once. And every possible physical, mental event would have to be talked about. We all select all the time. Of course we do. History involves interpreters reading, thinking, describing. But this doesn't mean that history collapses into mere subjectivism. History, like all knowledge, is engaged in by a process of thinking, of hypothesis and verification, of interaction between the person who is doing the knowing and the thing that is being known. And history is a perfectly proper form of knowledge, uh, like all other sorts of knowledge properly conceived. But history includes not only events but also intentions and motivations. We can't always study those too easily. Often the evidence isn't available. But in principle, what we're looking for in history is not just a physical event, but also the intentions and motivations which led up to and continued from that event. And in particular, history aims at a story. History aims at narrative. It's not a string of disconnected events. It aims at showing the interaction between events and showing why they were important at the time. Therefore, aims at meaning. Now, what is meaning? This is another huge and difficult issue. The meaning of a word, said Ludwig, Ludwig Wittgenstein, is its use in a context or a sentence. And the meaning of a sentence, I think, is its place within a story or a narrative or something approximating to that. And the meaning of a story or a narrative is its place within a worldview or perhaps a theology. What does a story do within a worldview? Well, it can legitimate it or it can subvert it, it can support it, it can destroy it. And the meaning of an event the meaning of an event, I suggest, is its place within a sequence, a potential narrative of events, a potential story of events. And the meaning of the event, or uh, the, the, the story of events, again, is the meaning in relation to the worldview. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we just collapse it again into the private thing of me perceiving meaning in events. Because events are, in principle, intrinsically public. We could examine, for instance, the meaning of the crucifixion, seen from the point of view of Pontius Pilate, or seen from the point of view of the women in front of the cross, seen from the point of view of the chief priests. And then we could examine the meaning of the crucifixion, seen from the point of view of Easter morning. And the point of that example is that it is in principle possible to discuss whose meaning does more justice to the actual totality of events. It doesn't simply collapse into being something in the private sphere. And already I think it's apparent from this analysis of history, which is my boiling down of a lot of discussion about history that's been going on in the last few years, that that reductionist line of saying that all we're doing is examining the bare facts that happened in the first century or in, the, uh, uh, in 1000 BC or any other time in relation to the Bible, that that project won't do that history is more than simply a string of bare events, bare facts. 
What then is theology? Again today we are faced with new possibilities for new paradigms. Theology is neither hard fact, obviously it isn't that, nor simply private belief. Theology really is a kind of knowledge, a knowledge which involves the grasping of a worldview in principle as a whole, and within that, grasping reflectively the place and role of a divine being within that worldview. It isn't just private, as I say, because it is possible to discuss different worldviews, different ways of talking about God, and saying that way is more coherent or less coherent than some other way. And Christian theology is that type of theology which postulates that the worldview is of a particular shape. Over against other worldviews, Christian theology speaks of a good creation, of a world that is in rebellion against its wise creator and of a particular person at a particular point in time and is now continuing to implement that by his own spirit. And Christian theology, therefore, is irreducibly concerned with history. The Christian worldview is inconceivable without talking about history. With, therefore, the real public world, Christianity cannot be an escape from history or from reason. Uh, it is to do with the world and what has happened in it and what will happen in it. And New Testament theology in general, and Christian theology in particular, therefore, characteristically, tells stories. Stories which articulate this worldview, stories which support this worldview, stories which modify it when it's in danger of going off the rails, stories which subvert the alternatives that look enticing, and stories which destroy the alternatives that rise up to oppose it. And these stories are not just fantasies, they are in principle about history. And it is clear, therefore, I think, that when we understand history, when we understand theology and what they are, they belong in the closest possible relation to each other, and that the studying of the Bible belongs in the middle between the two. So, thirdly, literature as the third leg. Again, there's an enormous ferment going on today about what literature is and how to study it. And if any of you have done English as a major somewhere else or anything like that, you'll know that there's all sorts of theories flying around, particularly in the States today. But literature, likewise, is neither a neutral description of the world, nor simply a collection of subjective private feelings, I suggest, but literature is, in principle, the articulation of worldviews and the attempt to do so in a wide variety of appropriate ways. And literary criticism, and when we're reading the Bible, one of the things we're doing is reading it as literature and understanding it as literature, has to do with the attempt to understand and get inside the worldviews and the implicit or explicit stories that that literature is offering. Because literature does embody or reflect stories so that even a short poem functions like a snapshot which encapsulates a bit of one's own story. I take a photograph of my family on holiday and even though it's just one little snapshot, it reminds me of and reflects the story of that part of our holiday and so on. So all literature, I suggest, comes back to this question of story. And within Judeo-Christian literature, there are two ways in which this happens. There are stories which embody the worldview, even though the story itself doesn't reflect something that happened in the real world, like Jesus' parables do, for instance. And there are stories which embody the worldview by talking more specifically about what happened in the public domain. That's what this worldview is all about. I'll say more about that next time. And in conclusion, in the New Testament, the Gospels clearly embody this, and so does Paul, and so do the other books. They are implying a story which is God's story with his creation. And the agenda, therefore, for New Testament studies today, I suggest, is to read the New Testament as history, to read it as theology, to read it as literature, and to grasp the essential integratedness of those three tasks when rightly conceived, and to reset the agendas accordingly. 
And I believe that in our generation, we have opportunities to do this for the New Testament and for the Old Testament. We have opportunities to do this in a way which may actually not merely address the modern world defensively, as though we are creating a little space where we can stand as, uh, as, as Christians in our own right, but we, are, we have an opportunity to do this in a way which may address the modern world in such a way as to subvert its stories, to take on its worldviews, and to say, how about trying this one? We then have this chance in the 1990s at this moment of paradigm uncertainty and worldview crisis. We have a chance to seize the opportunity to address this task. And frankly, if we don't, other people will. Other worldviews will. But if we seize it and address it, then if we can uh, work this thing out, then we are actually not merely learning for ourselves, we are implementing the purposes of the God of whom we speak, not just for our private edification or academic satisfaction, though those will be taken care of en route, but for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And on Thursday, I shall apply that in some detail to some of the specific tasks in biblical studies. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.